What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Still no deal. Like you just heard, House Speaker McCarthy says the two sides remain hung up on the central issue of baseline spending. The central issue with only days before we might hit the debt ceiling. That update sending stocks to session lows. Only two names in the carry are positive right now. But our market guest says any debt ceiling risk may be to the upside. She tells us why and what she's buying. On the other hand, the worst is yet to come. That warning courtesy of billionaire real investor Don Peebles. Real estate investor, I should say. He's also a real investor. He's back with us live with how much pain he still sees ahead and where he sees opportunity also as a result. Plus, Jim Cramer sees a genuine bull market underway in one particular area of the market. I bet you can't guess it. It has nothing to do with AI. Mizuho agrees, and the analyst joins us today with where there's more upside and the names to watch. Let's start with the markets, though. Get the full scoop from our Dom Chu. Decidedly down today, but I'm going to show you after I get through the markets where I'm seeing a bull market as well. So we'll see if that jives with what those Mizuho analysts are saying. Uh, Overall, the markets have been down pretty much all day. And as Kelly mentioned, we drifted towards those session lows after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy really kind of told us all that the two sides are still pretty far apart on a debt ceiling deal. So the Dow Industrial is down about 260 points, about three quarters of 1%, a similar percentage loss for the S&P 500. Remember, we were that 4,200 point before. We're now hovering just above 4,100, down 36 points, about almost one full percent. At the highs of the session, we were still down 13 points, down 42 at the low. So again, tilting towards the lower end of the trading range so far today. The Nasdaq Composite off about almost one full percent as well, 12,438. Now, I mentioned where that bull market was that we're seeing. If you look at the housing market right now, that's where we're seeing some real positive signs. Now, we're off our session highs right now, but take a look at Toll Brothers. After the closing bell yesterday, bullish numbers, better than expected profits and revenues at that home builder, helping to kind of put a rising tide among a lot of the home builders out there. Lennar is up about one and a quarter percent. D.R. Horton, Pulte Group, among some of the green names in an otherwise red tape right now. The iShares U.S. Home Construction ETF, ticker ITB, is up one quarter of one percent as well. So maybe... Some green there in a sea of red. And then two of the retailers are big in focus right now. We've got smaller ones like Kohl's and Abercrombie & Fitch. I'll start with Kohl's right now, which is up about 6%. And believe it or not, that's well off session highs. We were up about 16 17% at least at one point earlier today. Better than expected results at that mid-scale department store retailer. You can see, though, it's been a downtrend overall over the last year. Meanwhile, flip it around to Abercrombie & Fitch, Teen Apparel & Retail. Check out here. It's up 26%. And that, by the way, is off the best levels of the session right now. So it's of a huge amount as they come out with better than expected results and raise their forecast. So a couple different moves. Uh, Kohl's over the last year down. Over the last year, though, for Abercrombie Kelly, up 52%. I will admit, back in my teenage and college years, <laughs> 
I did wear some of that stuff. Dom, we should have hung on to everything. It's, I just was on the website. Everything says 90s this, 90s that. It's crazy. What's old is new again, Kelly. Absolutely. Dom, we'll see you soon. Thanks. As he mentioned, stocks hit session lows after Speaker McCarthy's latest comments on the debt ceiling. McCarthy saying talks are still hung up on baseline spending. So are we really anywhere close to a deal? Let's get to Kayla Talashi. She is at the White House with all the latest. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Kelly. The answer is no, they're not any closer to a deal. Negotiators spoke by phone last night. They're meeting just across the way from where I am right now. That meeting started at noon, and despite the fact that negotiators are now on the different end of Pennsylvania Avenue, they're pretty much stuck in gear. And that is this dispute over what spending levels for the next two years should look like. The White House proposed freezing spending levels, essentially at the last fiscal year, and then a slight decrease for the next two years. Republicans say no. If freeze is not good enough, it needs to be cut even further. So that has been the position for the last several days. And even despite Speaker McCarthy leaving the White House on Monday and saying it was the most positive meeting he's had yet, he is still not entirely optimistic about how this is going to go. And when asked what Republicans were prepared to offer in the way of concessions at today's meeting, here's how the speaker answered. I'm willing to make America stronger, to curve inflation, less dependency on China, and spend less than we spent the year before. So essentially, that is our plan is the plan. And just last night, when other Republicans who are part of these negotiations were asked what Republicans would concede, they said the debt ceiling. Raising the debt ceiling is what Republicans will do in exchange for Democrats cutting spending. You saw there on the calendar, there's just about a week left before that June 1st X date that the Treasury Secretary has identified as when the real pain begins, when Treasury will have to make choices about how to prioritize some of its bills, which it's never done before if there's not a deal that's been reached. And we will see whether there's anything that results from today's meeting. But some negotiators, Kelly, are not optimistic about what could come. Yeah, Back to you. Markets starting to reflect that finally as well. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Let's ask my next guest. Uh, we've already seen a lot of pain in commercial real estate, specifically in office space. It's by far the worst performing rate so far this year. Just two days ago, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warned once again of more pain ahead. And here's what he told analysts at J.P. Morgan's Investor Day. The offsides in this case will probably be real estate. It will be certain locations, certain office properties, certain construction loans. Uh, it could be very isolated. So it's not, it won't be every bank. You know, it'll be just, it'll be some may have an issue in real estate. Private credit, if you ask me, there may be someone offsides there. Well, my next guest is echoing that sentiment. He raised the flag about office concerns on our show back in December. He says the rapid rise in interest rates has been nothing short of catastrophic and the worst is yet to come. Let's bring back Don Peebles, billionaire real estate developer and chairman and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. Before we dive into all of that, Don, if I may, a comment about the debt ceiling. How are you thinking through this? Well, I think they'll work it out. I think that there's going to be some compromise on both sides. They need to. Spending's out of control, and they need to start cutting spending, and they need to prioritize how we spend our money. But I think that Speaker McCarthy and President Biden will ultimately make a deal, um, and this will, you know, hopefully be put to bed for the next three years, because that's what they've been talking about as well. But do you kind of ignore it then? I mean, just as it, whether it's looking at this from an executive or investor or whatever point of view, I mean, are you just literally keeping your head down and, and just not paying attention to it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more static. It's more noise. Um, the fact of the matter is that the speaker and the president are not going to let the country default. Um, we are not going to get to that point. They will compromise. 
and they're working diligently to do that. And uh, I don't think anyone on either side of the aisle would want to see our country paralyzed and 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 us not be able to pay our bills and Americans suffering for that. Sure. I mean, it's going to be hard to ignore it completely when it's unclear if this is going to play out over a week or maybe four weeks or eight weeks or, you know, we'll see. In the meantime, then, what is the most important thing to focus on? Well, I think they're focusing on what is happening in the economy. I mean, interest rates have um, chilled the economy. I mean, they're having devastating impacts on commercial real estate. Um, as Jamie Dimon indicated, uh, that's going to create some significant stress on local and regional banks. You know, not everywhere, but in major markets around the country, there will be significant uh, stress in those sectors um, because these banks are making 80 percent of the development loans in their markets. And so as a result of that, there's going to have some serious stress coming. And uh, and that's not just on the development loans, but on the acquisitions and repositioning uh, loans as well. But there's a lot of stress in that sector and uh, the worst is yet to come. And I think we're going to see some other banks in trouble. So, you know, I was struck, obviously, we're all following the news with PacWest. They're doing what they can to offload some assets, now offload a business that was focused a little bit on kind of residential real estate investment. Um, So are banks being proactive enough here? I think that they're trying to figure this out because they were making loans at lower leverage in sectors that were performing very well with good, strong fundamentals, um, especially on multifamily residential. And because of this rapid rise in interest rates, what was a very strong sector is now in trouble. And I think that they're trying to figure this out and with the hope that things will stabilize and some um, are being more proactive in selling off their assets um, in places where they think are, are trouble. But the buying um, is going to be at much lower prices. And next year, we're going to see a lot more as these interest rate caps start burning off on these commercial real estate loans, multifamily and office buildings. Yeah, we've actually jumped from one topic to the other. While everyone's aware of the pain in office, the pain in multifamily could really just be starting. You know, the big stat is that we had the most uh, apartment supply come online last year in, I think, 30 years. So do you think that's going to end up being as big a problem area as office, which has its own pandemic issues? Yeah, I think the apartments, so there's a there's a continued demand for it. And as the housing market, the for sale market continues to tighten up, there's a greater demand for rental properties. The problem is the fundamental investment decisions in the beginning that got that are going to get people in trouble. Um, apartment buildings were selling at below 4% cap rates. So the expectation of those buyers were that interest rates were going to continue to stay low or they were going to have moderate movements. But they didn't. They more than doubled now. And as a result, these projects are no longer fundamentally sound and you can't move rents quick enough to offset it. So I think those types of investments are going to have some trouble, but mainly in the private lending community, as Jamie was mentioning. Right. And also, I think you'll see it, you know, with the funds that have made, um, you know, PE funds that have made equity investments and MES loans in those places. I think their equity is going to start getting wiped out in those places. Yeah, and it may be, you know, quote unquote private, but uh, when it bubbles back to pension funds or, or the rest of it in terms of losses, obviously there, there will be an impact. This is the first time we've heard from you since the bank collapses in March. And the Fed officials, you know, they've continued to raise interest rates. They sound somewhat constructive on it. You sound a lot more concerned, I, I think it's fair to say. Um, do you think that Fed policy should pause, that the economy is going to end up being much weaker than, than is currently appreciated? Yeah, I mean, I think the Fed was too hyper-focused on consumer spending and not enough focused on what the overall ripple impact. I mean, if you think about the commercial office building sector and how that was fundamentally changed as a result of COVID 
and remote working. It was already struggling in some of the cities like New York where there are high tax and there were businesses leaving. But once COVID changed the way Americans went to work, that uh, created a great deal of stress. And then now to double the interest rates on those assets, they basically are, are many of these buildings have no way to survive. Many of these property owners, you're seeing some of the strongest companies um, in the commercial office building sector, their stocks have plummeted and they're defaulting on loans. I mean, if you look at Vornado, you look at SL Green, they are in the epicenter because they're New York City focused and they're office building focused. Stocks down significantly, and they're beginning to talk about selling assets and giving them back to their lenders. That is an example of what's coming. By the way, but they're not the only office building owners. So the entrepreneurial firms, the smaller and the regional uh, property owners and so forth, they're going to start having greater stress, and they're not going to be able to hold on. And so 2024 is going to be a very, very uh, tough year for this sector. Throughout 2023, we'll see some problems, but 2024, 2025, you're going to see significant stress and value loss and value erosion. A quick final question for the individual investor who may be watching and thinking, okay, well, me, you know, I don't know, if I take this point of view, how do I make it investable, right? I mean, you can move to the sidelines and kind of wait things out. You can harvest the yields that, you know, the high yields that are still on offer and a lot of uh, different cash-like things. What, what would the Don Peebles kind of investment theme be here um, as we see what you say the worst is yet to come and a lot there's still a lot of pain to be felt yeah i think this is going to be we're an opportunistic company so we've always looked at real estate from an opportunistic perspective and so we are partnering with two large investment firms for example to go and raise a couple billion dollars as a pe fund to go and buy distressed office buildings and convert them into other uses so i think that next year is a time for investors to look at where they buy office buildings, not for office building operators, but for those who are going to convert those office buildings into other uses, like residential, like hospitality. Both sectors um, are going to be pretty strong. And the office sector, you're going to be to buy these buildings at such significant discounts that there'll be a lot of upside. So that would be the first place I would look to make investments. All right. And maybe wait in the meantime. And, you know, I was thinking of you when it looks like we're going to have a Miami, Den uh, Miami Denver NBA playoffs. I thought it's a Don Peebles playoff. Is L.A. and Boston are no, it's the, the decline of some older cities, the rise of the newer ones you're always uh, emphasizing. And I thought that was quite potent. We'll see, of course, if they make it that far. Don, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Don Peebles you with the Peebles you. Corporation. That bleak outlook for commercial real estate is one of the reasons why analysts remain worried about the regional banks. But Peter Winter over at DA Davidson recently called out one name with a fortress-like balance sheet, a loan-to-deposit ratio of just 41 percent. That's less than half the peer median. And they're saying it's well-positioned to take market share in a difficult environment, as was just described. He's talking about Frostbank, and that stock is down today, but on pace for a positive week. Joining us now is the CEO, Phil Green. He is chairman and CEO. Phil, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Great to see you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So many people have referenced, you know, the Texas bank failures of the 80s when they talk about what could happen now. And yet it seems as though the Texas uh, economy and, and Texas lenders look OK. Am I going to regret saying that? I hope you don't. I, I, that's the same thing I would say. You know, I, I went through the 1980s with Frostbank and um, you know, so this isn't our first rodeo. I'll tell you, this is not the 1980s. And uh, the real estate markets that we're seeing now are really not indicative of that at all. I'm not going to say there's not going to be some stress in the markets, but this is definitely not the 80s. You know, I think that um, one thing about the Texas market, and admittedly, that's where I operate, that's uh, where Frost Bank is doing all our business, is that um, a thousand people a day continue to move into the state. 
that means that they need housing, they need multifamily, and they need places to work. So I think that's been a good thing for us. Even if the fundamentals are strong, you could still be guilty of um, you know, being too profligate, I guess we would say, in 2020, 2021, when valuations were much higher, maybe funding some projects that because of office changes or, or real estate supply, multifamily now don't look so great. Talk about the discipline that uh, you had, or if those are even areas where you would uh, traditionally be active uh, in the last couple of years and where that leaves you now. You know, you make a great point. You know, the fact is, it's it's not what you're doing at this point in time. It's what you did three years before and how you underwrote deals and the kind of people that you banked and the structures that you had. And, you know, we report on our conference calls every quarter how many deals we lose to price and how many deals we lose to structure. We lose many more deals to structure. And those deals that we lost uh, at that point look look better and better at, you know, today. So, it really has to do with banking great people, not not transactions, and making sure that your structures are right. And I think it all works out uh, if you're doing those things. That said, do you still face funding pressures from having to pay whatever you have to pay on your deposits now uh, and not earning as great return if customers are kind of starting to shy away at, I don't know, 9% rates? Yeah. You know, I think that the, for, for the banking industry today, we've moved, we've moved beyond what was happening with Silicon Valley right after that. And what we're hearing of, you know, not just ourselves, but from our community banks, and just for example, Texas has about 450 banks, <clears throat> and we bank about about half of those banks. And what we're hearing from them is a lot of that dust up is settled down. But what they're trying to do now is figure out what cost will it take in order to grow deposits and maintain the ones you have. That's really more of an operating margin issue, and they're dealing with that. But that's a business issue as opposed to the kinds of liquidity issues that people were dealing with 60 days ago. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's something that they're all going to have to look at and they're going to have to look at their cost structures and, and what it takes to be successful. The, the last question is kind of the, the biggest hanging over the whole industry right now. Um, do we need, you know, you know, to change deposit insurance or not? Will that just do more moral hazard? Do you feel like you're at a disadvantage because you're not on the same playing field as a J.P. Morgan with an implicit government bar- uh, guarantee? You know, um, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, I don't think we need fully insured deposits for everyone. I do think it's a moral hazard, but you got to remember, we're a 155-year-old bank that's uh, that's been through a lot of things. I was reading our 1933 annual report, and then the chairman at that time railed against a new program that today we call FDIC. He thought it was a big moral hazard. Hmm. So I, I believe that you need to have it. I think it should probably go up from the 250 to an inflation adjusted number, but I think it's not its not something that we need to do to have universal uh, insurance, you know, and I think it's important for us to get past this developing stigma around uninsured deposits. You know, the, the commercial bank model really doesn't operate on a fully insured basis. I mean, let's take a, a developer that wants to have a $50 million project in a community that's going to create jobs. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take all, cobble together all these $250,000 savings account, lend it to him. What are those people supposed to do when they want mortgages? Right. And they want, uh, they, they want credit for their own families. And so, you know, it is a situation where we have a noble profession of bringing together people who have excess funds to people who need it. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but it takes discipline mm-hmm. and it takes probity to do it. And I think that um, 
we really need to get comfortable with that because that's how we grow communities. You can't grow a bank on scared money. You can't grow a community on scared money. That is a quote uh, to put on the wall. Phil, the only thing I'll say that's unsettled me about this interview is that you're reading the 1933 letter to, to shareholders <laughs> or annual letter. <laughs> I'll admit to it. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Gail. Phil Green joining us from Frostbank today. Coming up, are we still in a stock picker's market? My next guest has been a longtime fan of stocks like Broadcom and Palo Alto. Is it time to take profits with both names hovering near record highs? And if so, where do you put the cash to work next? We'll ask Nancy Tangler. Plus, NVIDIA, Elf Beauty, and Dollar Tree on deck with results. Jeff Kilberg is here on set with the numbers and narratives to know ahead of those reports in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Just off session lows, Dow's down 250, S&P's back to 4,109. The Russell Small Cap's the worst hit with the KRE back in the red today. And the 10-year yield still sitting up at 373. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Today's hot stock is Palo Alto, popping 8% on what's already been a good year, and this after its strong Q3 earnings report. My next guest has been adding to her position in the stock since last fall. Is it time to take some profits, though? She says not so fast. She's a fan of that. Some other tech stocks, even Amazon right now. Joining me is Nancy Tangler. She is CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome back, Nancy. Good to be with you, Kelly. You know, you have mentioned Palo Alto a lot, and maybe I should have stopped at one point and said, now, wait a minute, you know, get everybody on board because, wow, what a performer this one's been. Yeah, I mean, this is a company that has a nice secular tailwind uh, behind it that's going to drive growth into the future. Uh, And now they're, you know, introducing the uh, omnipresent AI into the narrative. Uh, we, you know, in fairness, I will tell you, we have had to trim it in some places, but we um, we still own it in a very large commitment uh, in, in two of our, actually three of our strategies. So I, I think this is a company that you just wait, you take your time. And May is giving us a lot of volatility, which is the friend to long-term investors. And so you look for opportunities to step in and just initiate or add to your holdings. But what's interesting is what about those? And there's been a great debate all day long going on about this. You know, at what point do you take profits, right? I mean, they, they've been on some great runs. I know you always have a bunch of candidates you're looking at for kind of the next ones to make a move like this. Um, why are you sticking with it? Or should people who are are now looking at the story thinking, OK, I missed this move or there's still time to uh, to get in and chase it? 
Yeah. So Kelly, I think I mentioned to you, I just finished the second edition of my book, The Women's Guide to Successful Investing. And in there, I use a case study. One of my clients, about 30% of his net worth is in Apple. And I have these ongoing conversations with him that he should take some off the table, but he's been right and I've been wrong. Um, (laughs) Portfolio managers do trim because it's a risk management uh, tool that we have. We don't want the market to make our allocation to stocks. But when you have a great company with a secular growth narrative, Honestly, it goes against my instincts, but oftentimes you just should hold on and continue to. And that has built built great wealth for you know many of the billionaires uh, in our culture because they yes. started companies and held on to the stock. No, it's so true. I mean, it's always the Buffett thing, right? You know, if you had a punch right. card, you said 12 stocks, you know, you, you know, would Palo Alto now make the cut? Okay, so, so many different follow-on questions I could ask, but because Amazon's having its shareholder day, maybe we'll talk about that one. A little more controversial. People do, hate the retail business, maybe love the cloud, but are nervous about its growth prospects. What do you see there? Well, I just see a great brand, and I actually think a good management team. I think Andy Jassy is being Tim Cooked, uh, which was when he took over from Steve Jobs. You know, the market um, underestimated him, continued to say this is he's not a great CEO, he's not innovative, and they were wrong, and he was right. So Jassy brought the cloud business to Amazon. Uh, I think that he needs to be given a little bit of time. The stock is up quite a bit, but it still has the potential with the cloud business, with um, advertising, with retail. There's a lot of levers to pull at this company. And sometimes I think some of these companies get underestimated because they they have too many good businesses, uh, the Microsoft problem. But I think you use this as an opportunity, the, the volatility that is, to add to holdings. And this is when you want to continue to hold. I calculated the return since inception. I can't remember, but it's, it's some ridiculous yes. um, number. And there have been a lot of ups and downs in that period. Like 20,000. I don't know. They're all it, it, up, it up there, yeah. something like that. It's not yeah. just tech, by the way. And obviously people who they know, Nancy, you're not just a tech person, but Lulu, uh, Chipotle, Toll, by the way, O'Reilly, that one obviously with, with AutoZone may be looking a little bit more questionable or maybe not. Um, so there are some consumer names in here, obviously the growthier ones. Yeah. And, and actually, Kathy, uh, Kelly, really quickly, um, one of the things that investors can do is sell a stock for all the right reasons, which we did in Starbucks. And mm-hmm. we were wrong. We'd owned it forever. Uh, it is a great brand, obviously. there were, I had some, some serious concerns over management, uh, the labor issues, China, they were doubling down. And um, yet, I think we were probably wrong about that. So when earnings came in disappointing, we stepped back in. And that's that's one of the things. If you own companies that have excellent management teams, you, you can own these stocks for a lifetime. You don't need me to manage your portfolio for you. You can do it yourself, which is actually the point of my book, by the way. <laughs> no, and by the way, I was going to say a good Mother's Day gift, but I guess we've missed that. that Maybe a good Father's <laughs> Day gift. I don't know. Um, quick final uh, comment then, Nancy, in terms of the market overall. Then do I mean, do you wait to be opportunistic if you think we're going to get a downdraft ahead or is it just full steam ahead at this point? Well, so I, I do think we talked a lot about we expected volatility in May. We'll probably get it through the summer. This debt ceiling circus is is, you know, driving the volatility. But one of the things investors seem to be missing is that when you go into a recession. So if we do nominal GDP, except for two periods, the great financial recession and 2020, nominal GDP has grown about four to five percent. And nominal GDP has a very high correlation to corporate earnings. So I do think that a lot of this was discounted last year and that we are in the beginning of a new bull market or the continuation of a bull market. Uh, And so I would just continue to add in a very disciplined manner. It's never exciting. I mean, I, I bought some Microsoft personally last year 
high at higher levels than it bottomed. I bought some at the bottom. I bought more on the way up. That's how you make money over the long term. Because it, at where it sits today, you don't feel too bad even if you paid two fifty for the stock, right? Yeah. yeah. So you. You just keep picking away, and um, it, in some of these stocks, you're getting paid via the dividend and a growing dividend to wait, and so that too is uh, an incentive, and that's that's how I manage our clients' portfolios, and I'm invested right alongside them. And there's Microsoft up at 313. Uh, what a stock that's been. Nancy, thanks for your time. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Nancy Tangler. Quick programming note. Don't miss a special edition of Power Lunch, The Power of AI. Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll look at how it affects everything from music and entertainment to restaurants and the labor market. Again, one-hour special on Power Lunch this Friday. Still ahead, energy is far and away the worst performing sector this year, down about 9% while the S&P is up 7. Are some of those stocks now too cheap to ignore? The staggering stats we haven't seen since the 90s ahead. And speaking of energy, it's the only sector actually in the green today, a bit of a counter-trend day. Real estate and financials are the worst as rates back up on that stronger-than-expected UK inflation data. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. We were down a little more than 300 points at session lows off that right now, but the S&P is still back to 4,112 as it continues to fluctuate in this band in recent weeks. And the Nasdaq composite, the worst performer, down nine-tenths of a percent. And the Crane Shares China Internet ETF has turned negative on the week. It's now on pace for its eighth straight week of losses. That would be its longest losing streak since summer 2021. News flow out of China, both in the macro sense, maybe this COVID issue lately is certainly not helping K-Web, uh, which is off to a tough start this year. Elsewhere, Eli Lilly getting a boost at B of A, reiterating their buy and raising the price target to $500 a share. That's 18% upside from here at 427. Bank of America is saying demand for Lilly's obesity drug Monjaro should grow 40% over the next seven years to become a nearly $20 billion drug by 2030. Of course, they're not the only bulls. Lilly has 19 buys, seven holds, and only one underperform rating on the street, according to FactSet. For more on that call, head over to CNBC.com slash pro. And we'll head over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? There are many people, Kelly, who say that drug may be the biggest ever for any company, including Lilly. Let's give you the news update at this hour. A 95-year-old Australian woman died this uh, died today a week after a police officer tased her in her nursing home. Police say Claire Nowland, who had dementia, approached the officer using a walker and carrying a steak knife. The officer who deployed the taser has been suspended without pay and is facing charges that will likely be upgraded following the woman's death. A new watchdog report says the federal agency that keeps the nation's nuclear secrets is vulnerable to insider threats. The Government Accountability Office says the Energy Department failed to act on recommendations from four independent reviewers leaving holes in protecting classified information. The GAO says failing to act on the report could lead to devastating consequences. Amanda Gorman's poem that won widespread acclaim after President Joe Biden's inauguration has been censored at a Florida school. A parent at the elementary school in Miami-Dade County complained about 
The Hill We Climb, claiming it indirectly had hate messages and wasn't educational. A materials review panel responded by moving the poem to the library's middle school section. Gorman says she was gutted by the decision. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Elf shares, or is it ELF, uh, have quadrupled in one year. They've quadrupled. Can you believe that? Is NVIDIA's valuation justified at 65 times forward earnings? And can Dollar Tree continue dominating discount retail? Those answers and more in Earnings Exchange next. Welcome back. NVIDIA is the headline, but not the only earnings action today. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade on that one, along with Elf Beauty. Is it Elf or ELF, Kilberg? It's your choice, I don't, You're the I, boss here. I don't know what it is. Also, ELF reminds me of the band back in the day. Well, but then Elf, you feel like they're, are they really, is Elf? And then you think about Will Ferrell, so good point. Exactly, either way. Uh, Jeff Kilberg is here on set. I should mention he is KKM Financial CEO and a CNBC contributor. Let's start with the biggie, obviously, NVIDIA. Their shares are actually a little lower into the print, but they've surged 50% since just the last report, and they've more than doubled this year. They're far and away the best performer in the SMH and practically the whole market. Analysts eyeing growth in gaming and data centers, and of course, in any products related to AI. So, Kilberg, what do you do with the stock and what about earnings? Well, I think if you own the stock, you have to hold it here because think about, you know, we're talking about percentages. Yes, up over 110%. However, in 2022, we were down 50%. So if you look at the price, and price is important, Kelly, the price right now is sitting here at $300. That's where we started the year in 2022. So if you think about a stock like this, it has a high beta, beta of 2.18. This is a high-flying name. But if you think about NVIDIA, the last two letters, Kelly, are AI. So when you talk about AI, you flip it's the it around, nucleus. Though. You yeah. don't have to flip it around. Maybe I'm dyslexic. But nonetheless, you have to think about being the nucleus of AI and this whole movement. Every single story we've heard this earnings season has been fantastic and exceeded the upside. Look at Palo Alto Network, cybersecurity. What do they need for cybersecurity? Chips. So I think when you bring it all together, I think you will see a beat. But at the end of the day, we're back to where we started, Kelly, at this monster $700 billion market cap. Right. Although a lot of companies would be happy to be back where they were in Jan of 22. Is, are you seeing any signs of being toppy? You know, relative strength, over, you know, to moving averages, anything like that? I would love to say it was overbought going into earnings because it's up 15% in the last 30 days where the S&P is up 1%. So, yes, there's a little bit of apprehension there. But I think there's more room to run. But what's going to be key about this earnings cycle, specifically the forward guidance, when you talk about are they going to be absolutely, you know, high, going into this season, you talk about the chips. Are people really hoarding those chips? Remember the toilet paper they were hoarding back in the day in mm -hmm. COVID? Will they be hoarding chips? But if they just elude to the fact that we are going to see more and more focus on AI, which we will, is what we've heard, I think the stock has the ability to move higher just on that forward guidance. Interesting. All right, let's move along and talk. You'd think this next one was an AI stock, but it's not. It's Elf Beauty. We're just going to go with that, which is practically acting like an AI play. It's up more than 50% this year and up 300% over the past year. The beauty category has been strong for a while. Some key points to watch here are gross margins as promotions potentially rise, retail versus online breakdown, any guidance on the consumer. Thoughts on this stock? I mean, talk about an under-the-radar high flyer. Sensational. And this is a nearly $5 billion market cap. Think about Estee Lauder, nearly $60 billion. So this is a much smaller player. But nonetheless, if you've owned this stock, I think you have to be more considerate of risk mitigation. So we talk a lot about options, and not to get too wonky here, Kelly, but I think you can sell the 100 call. You're going out 23 days, and that expiration allows you to bring in a little income. You're selling it, collecting about $1.50. Then you're going to buy that $75 strike price put. So that spread costs you 50 cents to insure your position. So if you've seen this 300% appreciation, I think you walk into an option overlay. 
and lock it down. However, you see exaggeration in a stock like this. It's a 50 times forward earn. I have to stay away. I would not initiate a position, but I would protect the position utilizing options if I have it in my portfolio. Interesting. So, I mean, can I call that a bearish take, sort of? On, uh, you can call it an apprehensive take. An apprehensive. Because, you know, that's a parabolic move, and yeah. you never want to short a position like that, but you do want to consider taking profits. No one's ever gone broke taking profits, Kelly. <laughs> Let's stick with Dollar Tree then. They're the next one, and the value retailer is only up about 10% this year. We'll watch guidance, recent spending trends, any updates on planned store openings and expansions. Um, of course, kind of a longtime rivalry with this one and Dollar General. Dollar General, I think, is perceived as kind of the better operator, maybe the, the FedEx to the UPS, although maybe they've switched places now. Well, that's where I think it's really interesting because, yes, maybe that was perception before, but Dollar Tree now, they've brought in a lot of new talent to the C-suite. I know Michael Creighton was an addition to that C-suite. So you think about what the talent they're bringing in, the distribution they have, over 8,000 stores. So I think, yes, as it sits in between its 52-week range, there's an opportunity here to buy this name because I think they're going to continue to reinvent the talent they're bringing in. I like that. And at the end of the day, a five-year look back, Kelly, is lock and step with the S&P 500. But there are moments in time where the Dollar Tree does have the ability. And if we do have some apprehension with investors and consumers moving forward, a name like Dollar Tree should prevail in Q3. 3Q4. Quickly, since apprehension is a, a little mini theme here, other than NVIDIA, what about the VIX above 20 today on what's a little bit more um, vociferous of a, of a down move? If no, I can call it's it a great point you bring up. So we look at volatility all the time, and I think the VIX really is exaggerating the fact that, you know, a couple days ago, we were annoyed with the debt ceiling drama. Now, maybe we're getting a little bothered. So we haven't moved into panic by any means because the VIX is just above 20. If it gets closer to 25 or 30, but we don't know when this debt ceiling drama is going to stop. Some people are putting different targets, nine more days, 15 more days. So it'll be really fascinating to see how that works out. But I believe, and I think the institutional traders and the hedge funds and the family offices that I talk to, they're not overly worried. They're going to come to resolution, but there's going to be a lot of political punches thrown between now and then. No, I like from annoyed to bothered. That is the change in market That's sentiment right. today. It is it is palpable. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank we appreciate you, it. Thank you for coming in. Jeff Kilberg. Coming up from uh, energy going from first to worst this year, but could it make history and turn things around to become the best performing sector for the third year in a row? We will debate that possibility next. Dow's down less than 200. Welcome back. Energy was the top performer in 2021 and 2022, but it's at the bottom of the pack so far this year. That's not stopping Goldman from striking a positive tone, calling the group very, very undervalued. Pippa Stevens here with the details. Pippa. Well, Kelly, that call came from Goldman Sachs' David Costin, and it comes as the energy sector's P.E. ratio relative to the S&P 500 sits at the lowest level in more than two decades. Energy's prominence just isn't what it once was. Since the 1970s, it's averaged an 11% weighting in the S&P, but now it's just 4.4%. Goldman pointed to a few reasons for the weakness this year, including resilient Russian supply, concerns around industrial demand, and a rotation into technology. Still, they said valuations and capital returns make the group attractive. And the firm specifically pointed to Antero, Conoco, Halliburton, and HF Sinclair as underperformers that have positive catalysts. Now, if we look at the sector broadly, Halliburton, Targa Resources, and Schlumberger have the most buy ratings across Wall Street, while Valero, Marathon Petroleum, and APA have the cheapest valuations. Still, Joseph Sikora from Aptus Capital Advisors told me he thinks valuations are fair and that energy's lows aren't yet in, adding if oil headed to 60 bucks, 
it would be a green, a big green light to buy. We're, of course, wow. not at 60. <laughs> and it's like either, you know, if we go to 60, the economy is doing terribly. If we maybe if supply are, you know, facing a few some some issues, we could see it go green. Want to talk to you, though, Pip, about some of the rest of the commodities complex and copper mm-hmm. looking pretty awful lately. Yeah. Zinc, I think, at about a two and a half, a three year low. What else? I mean, well, with copper specifically, you can really see it on a one-year chart. You can see how the rally started in the fall and went up and spiked in January with all these hopes around this recovery in Chinese demand. And that, of course, just has not materialized. Then we also have weakness from both the U.S. and Europe. And actually, on Monday, the difference between copper trading today and copper for three months was at the largest, uh, the biggest divergence since 2006. Wow. Which really speaks, according to the LME, which really speaks to how quickly kind of this narrative deteriorated. We also have more supply coming online with Peru. Those exports are back up. And so it just hasn't happened. So Interesting that chart down. still shows the coppers above where prices where it was about last July, though. Yeah, yeah. And I think that they're longer term. There still is maybe some optimism that particularly from we've talked a lot about how clean energy will be a big driver longer term. But things like construction, things like industrial activity right now are down. But yeah, I mean, that is a good point that it is still higher than last year, despite all of the weakness around China. But I think it's exactly what you said. There's such long term secular tailwinds that for it to be down at all, I think just tells you kind of some of the macro weakness that it's sniffing out because the whole bigger picture, as we've heard, you know, Dan Jurgen and others talk about is constrained supply electrification of anything, you know, this thing should be going to the moon, <laughs> not not the sort of struggle it's had year to date. Pippa, thank you. We appreciate it, Pippa Stevens. Still ahead, shares of this medical device company up about 12% so far this year. And on Monday, Jim Cramer says he sees a bull market emerging in the sector. One analyst reveals his top picks next. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage with stories of some of their influential business leaders. Here is Apothecary founder and CEO Shizu Akuza. What makes me proud of being an Asian American founder is my parents. They immigrated here in the 1980s with nothing. They were farmers. And here I am today, having raised over 13 million of venture capital on my second company, Apothecary, filmed for Shark Tank, and I am just getting started. Welcome back. Medtronic was our mystery chart before the break. Slightly higher ahead of its earnings report tomorrow and up about 12% year to date. But could it have more room to run? Jim Cramer is saying if we've learned anything this earnings season, it's that medical devices are in an emerging bull market, benefiting from the recovery and non-emergency surgeries that were put on hold during the pandemic. And Medtronic is one of my next guest top earnings picks, along with GE Healthcare and Inspire Medical. Joining me now is Anthony Patrone. He is senior medical devices analyst at Mizuho. I mean, has it ever been this exciting, Anthony? I, I can't contain myself. Well, first, thanks, Kelly, for, for having me on. And, and it certainly is a resurgence in, in the medtech space, particularly U.S. medtech stocks. And, and you mentioned some of our top picks there, Medtronic. Certainly, GE has had a good run after the spin. That was a, a separation officially in the beginning of uh, January uh, of this year. And that, that name was up 55% year to date. You mentioned Medtronic up 12% year to date. Part of what we're seeing, Kelly, is certainly the the comeback of surgical procedures. Right. Hospital companies are, are talking about this quite a bit. The uh, HCAs of the world first quarter. We certainly uh, a did see some easy comps. So that was at play in the first quarter of mm-hmm. 2023. Uh, but but indeed, there's also some headwinds that are moderating and easing 
Uh, one of the things we've heard about quite a bit through 2022 was the fact that there was staffing shortages in key areas within the hospital, radiology, cardiology, orthopedics. Some of those headwinds have alleviated. Uh, we're seeing that certainly. And that's not only a U.S. phenomenon, that's also OUS. Sure. So that has helped some of the uh, the volume picture here in 1Q. And we think for the most part in the U.S., that will continue into 2Q. So tell me about the valuation for, for these names, which in many cases are still below where they were a year ago in, in trading. And what would be the catalyst? I mean, is it the next earnings season? What Other than, you know, Kramer's bullishness, but like what would make people kind of wake up? And, and maybe it's the healthcare trade if the, if the market turns more defensive and people want some, to kind of be positioned both defensively, but maybe with a little bit of growth within the sector. I think you're hitting the high points, Kelly. So a couple things. One is recession, right? And so healthcare is countercyclical. Medical device within healthcare is countercyclical. So I think that draws uh, capital within to these names. So that's a theme we're looking at and monitoring. I would say, secondly, you know, some some new uh, um, end markets are really accelerating here. One that Medtronic is in and, and gaining share recently is the transaortic valve market, Tavers. Mm. You know, those those surgeries have really bounced back in the first quarter. Medtronic in particular has a new solution, Evolute FX. Our data tells us they're gaining share in that market category. So some idiosyncratic product uh, categories, but also, right. again, resurgence in procedures. And if we're thinking about the dreaded, you know, R word into the second half, you know, this is a space certainly where you can provide some cover. Yeah. And Jim also was excited about, you know, GE Healthcare saying they have scanners that are essential for Alzheimer's. That's obviously a really hot area right now. Last question about a risk factor, Anthony. What happens, you know, with all the excitement over the weight loss drugs, could that mitigate the need for some of these medical device procedures in the future if it helps people shed weight and remove some of those risk factors? Well, certainly, I think everyone in the med tech space would, would, would certainly, the folks that run these companies would, would certainly love to see that. But a lot of these conditions are chronic, they're progressive. Certainly, weight loss drugs can help. But for instance, we, we mentioned GE Healthcare. One of the drivers we think we're going to see with some of the uh, weight loss drugs, Ozempic and others, is the need for MRI brain scans. You mm. need to monitor for brain swelling when you're on one of these medications. And so we think that actually is a driver for MRI demand. We're seeing that in numbers now. Uh, GE CEO Peter Arduini spoke about that on the first Q earnings call. And we actually think that that cycle is just starting to get going. Wow. You know, some of the other names um, that, that, that we are recommending here, Lantheus Imaging in the diagnostic space that's had a great run up about 80% year to date. We still think that's a double from here. On the small cap end, we're, met, we're recommending Adma Biologics as well as establishment labs. And we think there are certain product cycles that are idiosyncratic to these names. And again, there's some counter cyclical benefits to those companies as well. So there's yeah. plenty of room here to spread capital during the recession. And that was Lanthius, LNTH, Adma Biologics, ADMA, for those trying to uh, catch up with this. That's fascinating about the need for MRI brain scans too, as these medications take off. Anthony, thanks for your time and for diving into this with us today. Kelly, thank you so much. And happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much. Great to be on CNBC for the birthday. I, there you go. No, I won't sing, but uh, we appreciate it. We hope you enjoy. Anthony Patron from Mizuho today. That does it thank for you. us. Got to end a little early. Get to those Fed minutes coming up next on Power Lunch. Tyler's getting ready, and I will see you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.